Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Teacher Prep with Dr. D. Today I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Tracy Benson, who is an assistant professor of educational leadership at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Dr. Benson received his doctorate in education leadership from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He's worked as an elementary principal coach, high school principal, middle school vice principal, and an elementary school teacher. Today, he's going to be talking to us about his latest publication, Unconscious Bias in School, which is framed as a developmental developmental approach to exploring race and racism in schools. And he'll be sharing with us how all of us have unconscious bias and why it's important for us to explore this as we work in the field of education. Welcome to another episode of Teacher Prep with Dr. D. Today we have joining us Tracy Benson, who again is great, a wonderful background in education. And we just got to hear about some of those things that you've done, Tracy. You've accomplished so much from getting a doctorate to working as a teacher, principal, and now professor of education. But what's been your most memorable experience in education thus far? Well, there are. Well, first, thanks for having me on your show today. I really appreciate you taking the time out to have me on. And I appreciate our conversation in advance. I know it's going to be riveting and very dynamic. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of different, you know, memories that of like great things that have happened in my educational career. But I think what has been sort of my most um, impactful moment is, is sort of knowing my North Star at this point. You know, I've been in education for almost 20 years. I've been a teacher in AP, I've been a principal. Um, and when I decided to go back to grad school uh, to get my doctorate, I had a road to choose. I had to choose either to go back into the field to be a superintendent or go into academia. And as I worked my way through grad school, um, you know, I was really getting concerned about the lack of research around structural racism in education. Um, uh, you know, I was reading a lot of deficit-related uh, frameworks and deficit-related research around the deficits of Black and Brown communities, but I didn't read a lot about so the the reason why, which is a lot is attached to structural racism. Mm-hmm. And so, um, instead of going back into the field, I chose to be the change I wanted to see, which is uh, academics who did more research around structural racism. And so, I chose to take on this this sort of when at this point is like third career, third educational career as a professor, uh, and I purely focus on the dynamics of structural racism in schools, which led to the writing of our book that just came out in August, uh, Unconscious Bias in Schools, which is a roadmap for school leaders who want to address these vestiges to help um, students of color perform better academically, socially, um, and then help to you know close the achievement gap by sort of uh, uh, opening the door to considering how racial bias plays a role in how students experience the schoolhouse. So what I hear from you is that you realize that you could have such a ripple effect with, you know, going into education and then moving into a scholarly role as an academic, focusing on research and then impacting new um, administrators or people that are really able to make those changes in in education from a K-12 space. Uh, Was that correct? Yeah, yeah, and I, I really love the work. Like I, I love being in it. You know, not a lot of folks love leadership, but leadership. You know, in terms of like teaching it, practicing it, that I, I 
really did love being a practitioner because I could actually see the change I was making within the schoolhouse. And so making changes to policies and practices and then measuring the change and it was tangible, measurable change. And then I was able to change hearts and minds of teachers, of other administrators by implementing anti-racist uh, uh, policies and anti-racist procedures and practices. Mm -hmm. And so to, to see that happen on the ground, it very much inspired me to continue in this work. And I wanted to amplify uh, uh, this area of study and these um, these practices that that could you know really reach more people instead of just me being in the school building implementing them I could write research talk speak consult uh, with larger school districts so more people can have access to these practices. And speaking about anti-racist policies, it seems like this is kind of a new space. You know, I've been in teacher education, and um, we don't really explicitly teach about what anti-racist racism is and specifically what are some of those policies what would they look like in a school can you give our listeners an, an example of what that how that might manifest so that they can have that awareness right so i mean the anti-racism is multifaceted multi-layered and you know as we all know in our country we're built on a foundation of racism Right. Black folks were brought here in 1619. And in 1619, you know, fast forward to 2019, was the 400th year uh, anniversary of the transatlantic slave trade. So we've had 400 years of racial oppression in this country, right? 246 of, the, of those years were in, in actual slavery. And most people don't understand, like, out of 400 years where Black folks have been here, more than half of that time has been in slavery. And that is significant. Because during this time, there was purposeful subjugation, especially in the area of education. Like black, it was illegal to educate black folks during, for 246 years here. And then we had another 99 years of Jim Crow segregation, right. where black, black folks were subjected to uh, uh, substandard education you know, because of segregation. And so 246 years plus, plus 99 years, that's 345 years out of 400 years. So that is extremely significant. And I think if we take 1965 as the end of legalized subjugation, if we just take that year, 1965 until 2020, that's only 55 years compared to 345 years of legalized subjugation. And so the residuals that we're seeing now in terms of the achievement gap is a direct result of that history of racialized oppression. And so we, we need to really be purposeful in our efforts to counteract the residuals of this racial oppression and the number of ways, I mean, there's a number of layers. There's policy, there's practices, there's the way that, that schools are, are funded. But um, in, in terms of being in the schoolhouse and the role of leaders and teachers is that we really need to look at the data in a different way. Mm -hmm. You know, we often look at data and say, oh, we have this achievement gap between black students and white students. And we try to explain it away saying that it's something to do with the family or, you know, the community, or they come from a single parent household. So we yeah, find all these excuses to blame it on the family and community, rather than really focusing on the residuals of racism in our schools. And that's what I, what I want to push folks to consider, that these residuals of racism still exist in the structures of school. And so we need to figure out where they exist at, um, and how then to counter them uh, in order to increase achievement for students of color. Wow, that, I mean, that is a huge space to even think about, you know, as a mom, my son was just reading uh, about the Roman Empire and civilization. He's like, Mom, why do I even need to study this? What's the point? And, you know, you just hearing what you said about like historical narratives and how they play into people's lives and how they influence the decisions seems like such a, a powerful space to to even think about and to walk in. 
Um, and you talked about, you know, these residuals and then the achievement gap and not just attributing the achievement gap maybe to things that, you know, are related to people's biases about people of color, but to actual systems that are in place that, you know, alienate or stigmatize or discriminate against people of color. Is that is that kind of exactly like, okay i'm just yeah, exactly and these forms of structural racism exist everywhere so mm -hmm. you know this history affects every aspect of our society and so point in case there are a number of studies that we talk about in our book in chapter one it's called do we have a bias problem right, right. and so it's, it's it's known even tangentially that the african-american community has higher unemployment rates than the white community on average regardless of so regardless of socioeconomic Right. And so some folks could say this reason is, oh, it's a it's a typical trope to say black populations are just lazy and they don't look for jobs. Right. But if you actually look for the vestiges of racial bias and racism in the hiring process, and there's this one study that and it's a popular study about resumes, resumes and between black and white white applicants. And so what the study showed is that they, what they did is they sent out a, a bunch of resumes, simple resumes, and it just changed the name of the person on the resume. Right. And one was white sounding, one was obviously, you know, could be associated with a black person. And what they found was that the black black applicant was 15% less likely to get a callback for an interview. Mm. And so that's squarely rooted in racism. Right. You know, and that, that, that can explain part of why there's a differential in the differential in employment. So if you take that same mentality into the schoolhouse. There's another study that um, that's about student um student essays and the way that teachers have either high expectations or low expectations for students who write essays. And I believe these students were in the fifth grade and these are fifth grade teachers. And so in this study, what um, the, the researchers did is that they, they got together a group of teachers and they gave them all the poorly written essay. Now the, 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 the teachers didn't know that the poorly written essay was written by the researchers, not by the students, but they thought they were written by students. Right. So what they did on the essay is they only gave the, the teachers the, the name of the student, their race, and their gender, and that was it. And they asked the, asked the teachers to grade the poorly, poorly written essay. And so when they got the essays back, what they noticed when they did their analysis is that if the student um, was identified as white, the teachers gave the students more critical feedback less positive feedback and a lower score on the essay opposed to if the student was black or latino um, the black or latino students they gave them more positive feedback less critical feedback and a higher grade and so this is how low expectations manifest themselves right. in the schoolhouse because teachers are giving black and brown students higher grades for substandard work meaning that that's the best they can expect them to do while they're looking at white students say, oh no, you're more intelligent, you can do better, so we're mm. gonna push you to let off to your potential. And so when we talk about the achievement gap and the way the students perform either on standardized tests or even on you know, in, you know, classroom assessments, that these teachers are unintentionally producing the, racial, the, the, the achievement gap because they're not holding students to the same standard. And so this is how racial bias plays out in the schoolhouse. That's so fascinating. And I remember reading about that in your, your text and that really just grabbed a hold of, you know, the power of knowing about our biases, because as you shared in the book, it's really unconscious and how they influence our decisions. So teachers might not even be aware of what they're doing and these decisions that they're making and thinking, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not biased towards my students. I, I, I'm helping them out. I'm giving them more, you know, opportunities. And, you know, so it's kind of that taking that stance of 
I wouldn't say empathy, but as you shared, setting those lower em- lower expectations. Um, it, it's really, it's heavy work that you're doing. It's very powerful. And I think it's really poignant for teachers and beginning teachers to kind of examine that frame as you shared with unconscious bias. And in the book specifically, you frame it as a developmental approach to exploring race and racism. So you just shared why it's so important. And you also shared with us a few strategies to help us do that work. Um, And I remember in my graduate course, taking that Harvard implicit bias test to see kind of where my biases are that I'm not even aware of. What else might teachers do to kind of get to that root of, am I racist? Well, I think it's, it's Doug, you used that word, am I racist? Right. <laughs> the question is like, the question is that, am I racist is how am I racist? And that's a hard concept for a lot of mm. people, right? Because what Robin D'Angelo talks about, and we talk about very strongly in our book in chapter two, it's called Start With Ourselves. Right. And we have to realize the constructs we have in our head. You know, especially if we've grown up not talking about the dynamics of racism. You know, most white folks don't grow up talking about the dynamics of racism in society in their lives and how they promote it or how they are privileged. It just doesn't happen. And so what happens is, you know, a lot of folks grow up with very low racial literacy, not understanding how racism plays out in society, how they perpetuate it, things they've ingested, because our schools simply do not teach this concept. Teacher education programs, principal education programs don't teach this concept, you know. So I have a very hard time grappling with that. But Robin D'Angelo writes about this concept of the good, non-racist, bad racist binary, mm. which most people are captive to, right? Meaning that, you know, if we don't intend to be racist, we see ourselves in this good, non-racist category where I'm well-meaning, well-intentioned, right. you know, I'm not bigoted, I'm not racist, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good person, opposed to the bad racist, you know? where, you know, I'm mean-spirited, I'm bigoted, I'm hateful, you know, and we see these, these folks over there, and, and unless someone's an espoused racist, most people want to see as as this good non-racist. Sure. But what we do know is we've been raised in a society that embeds us, embedded in pretty, during our waking hours sort of racialized imagery that we talked about in the first, in the first chapter, that we're inundated with these messaging uh, of racialized imagery that builds up this uh, unconscious preference for the white race, right? And so that builds up our internalized racial bias, internalized racism, even among people of color, right? Because people of color are still raised in the same society that, that values white people more than people of color. So we all ingest these racial biases. And so when we're caught in this binary, it, it prevents us from realizing that we've ingested biases and we're unintentionally acting them out, right? And we spend so much time protecting this good non-racist identity that it closes us off to learning. Mm-hmm. But what we need folks to first, the first step is accepting that we've ingested a significant amount of racial bias and it plays out in our lives, even unintentionally. And so there's no, really no good racist, good non-racist, bad racist binary that we're all on a learning continuum about uh, how to undo our internalized racism and how it does and how it does play out in a classroom, how it plays out in the decisions that we make. And most, I mean, more often, which is probably very familiar with a lot of people, it plays out in very three particular ways too, also in our, in our daily lives. It plays out in, in terms of where we live. We often pick where we live, where we choose for ourselves and our family to live, based not solely on race, but race has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. You know? We also often choose where we send our kids to school, not solely based in race, but race has something to do with it. And it also, plays out in terms of the workplace, where we choose to work and who we hire to work with us. 
So these are three areas that it's very, you know, we often just mean to be, you know, brought brought to our attention that we think in racialized ways. We make these unconscious decisions based in race, and that also translate to the work that we do with with students and the way we interact with them, the way we treat them. And so for the new teacher, what I encourage is that learning one, our book is a good resource, but there are other resources on how racial bias plays out, is learning about the concept of racial bias, and then go down the rabbit hole of choosing one or two areas to really focus in on about how it plays out in the classroom, right? And one place that's that's relatively simple, that's low-hanging truth that I have had experience with is, is during classroom observations. Right. right. Because if racial bias plays out, and gender bias also plays out, you know, this happens in my college classroom, right? That, um, that I teach a course called Supervision of Instruction. And what I, there, we have two sections on race and gender bias. And during this course, I have my students who are, who are aspiring principals, these are current teachers, go in and do classroom observations just from a race and gender lens. What I have them do is just track student-teacher interactions based on race and gender. Mm. So record the race and the gender of the student um, and the type of interaction they have with the teachers. And 95% of the time, if not more, the students locate a race, a race and gender bias among the teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, sort of, it's sort of like this hierarchy, right? And so what we find is that white males, you know, are most often given the most attention in the most leeway, followed by white females, followed by, you know, the kids of color. And then what we see most often is that black boys and black girls are the, are the least, ones who receive the least positive praise, the, are, are least likely to interact with the teacher and re- receive the most redirection. And this is just by doing one classroom observation. What the teacher knows is acting on the racial biases unintentionally, but it's really doing real harm to kids because they're learning how racial biases work and, and, and impacting them, the students of color in very real ways, but also the white students. Because that's how we're passing on racial bias because we're, we're demonstrating that as a teacher. And the white students see this sure. and they ingest it, not logically, but intuitively, and that teaches them the racial bias that they have privilege and the students of color don't. Right. I mean, it, it almost gets back into like, uh, from a scientific perspective, you know, how people fall in line, you know, how the birds migrate and they fly across and, you know, who's who's at the top of the of that arc um, and, and how everyone else falls into place. But, you know, it was really fascinating when you were talking about all these thinking about unconscious preferences. And when I was telling you, I actually took that implicit bias test. And I had the most bias towards white males, which I was surprised. And so, but I, I, I guess as a person, I was like, well, why am I feeling this way? And I would honestly say that maybe for me, I grew up in a, uh, a you know, a white high poverty area in the projects in Boston with mostly white families, but all high poverty. I mean, we had Irish mafia and, you know, I had friends whose parents were in jail. So there was a lot of those uh, issues that are kind of issues of poverty that evolve from not, you know, from people not having access to high, you know, to trainings, to jobs, to moving up in the social ladder, if you will. So I think it was just really interesting when you said that particular preference, it made me think about that experience. I was like, wow. You know, I also attributed them to my experiences. So I think having some experiences when we talk about training teachers, teachers actually have the most anxiety working with um, students with special needs because they've had such few experiences working with kids that maybe they're autistic or they have, um, 
you know, uh, disabilities that they've never been exposed to, right? So how do we kind of move forward in a way when there is such segregation in our communities, as you shared, you know, people tend to choose to live in spaces where maybe they feel, you know, this is my tribe, right? How do, how do we do that and then go and work in communities where our kids are not of the same racial identity? Right, yeah, we are very racially isolated. You know, you go to any city, you know, across the U.S., that racial isolation is something that's prevalent in our society in terms of residential segregation is also, and also school segregation. And so, you know, and this is just the, 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 the residual from our racist past. Right. So, of course, we had, you know, de jure segregation where it was mandated by law that we had folks had to live separately. But the, even though we lifted the law, we still had to um, de facto segregation just because of the residual. We still carry those thoughts in our minds in our head that we live separately. And so, yes, that it is very difficult to have cross racial conversations where we're not in close proximity. That we don't have folks who are different from us very often in our social circles. And so, one, we have to be intentional about that, one. But two, it doesn't take, you know, cross-racial conversations for us to declare that anti that racism is a problem. And I think that's where we make our biggest, our biggest sort of mistake, you know, is that we we think that we people of color must be around for us to talk about racism. Racism sure. is a national problem that's affecting everyone. It's affecting white people, it's affecting people of color. The concept of racism is there. And so Regardless of who, you know, the, 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 the racial makeup of a community or the racial makeup of a school, racism is still at play. And so what I talk about in some of my talks is that the main places that I believe that talks about racism need to take place is in all white schools. Because <laughs> the concept is still ever present in our society and they're going to have to deal with what's going on in our society as a person who's, who's an American citizen, right? right. And so... In its least, in these conversations about racism are least likely to happen among groups of all white people. Right. And so once we decide that rate the concept of racism, what is it? How does it play out? How do we perpetuate it? And how do we prepare our students, uh, our students, then to go out as adults to have you know uh, constructive conversations about racism? We can't really change the society for any for to. To, to be better, you know, because I hear a lot of folks, especially folks that I work with, they have this will and the want for the society to get better. But I'm like, what are you doing in your own circle of influence to really talk about the dynamics of racism? Are you talking about it in your social groups? Are you talking about it in your family? Are you talking about it in your, you know, all white community center? You know, it, it's it's something that we need to all take on as part of our responsibility, just at least to start to have the conversation about the concept of racism and what that means for us in our community. I love that. You know, I, I feel like when you, we're even here having a conversation with you is, is feeling open to share, open to have the dialogue is so important. And when you were talking about all white schools, it, it triggered me because I've worked in, you know, high poverty, 99% free and reduced lunch, 99% um, students, uh, English language learners. And then I've also had the experience of working at schools that are, you know, predominantly white, predominantly affluent. As a teacher, I actually struggled the most in those spaces. I felt like the kids were entitled, they were disrespectful, they didn't appreciate me. You know, it was just kind of, I felt more of a hard time connecting with students in those spaces um, for some reason, I don't know if it was maybe my own experiences growing up in, in a poverty in, in different social classes than 
than these kids. But and so it's just really interesting that we we talk about the work. And I actually have a colleague of mine. She just left her all white community and now is working in the city, San Jose, and she's loving her kids and the connections that she's making. I don't know if you have any, maybe give us some insight into why teachers are having these experiences. Why are they feeling more connections with kids that maybe they're, they don't identify with um, in terms of they don't have the same race? I mean, it's, it's, I think it comes down to social distance theory. It's a sociological theory around who we're comfortable with, you know, mm -hmm. who we've been around, how we've been raised, the, the social norms, you know, the social right. norms of, you know, affluent households, regardless of race, is different than the social norms of middle class, social norms of those in poverty class. They're just different, different in terms of expectations, different in terms of, so when you talk about the kids are disrespectful, respect means something different when you're affluent, apparently. I, I didn't grow up affluent. I grew up in a very low-income community uh, of color in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Right. You know, and so, uh, and I had the experience of being bussed out. So I, in, in my history, I was bussed out to an immigration program, you know, on the north side of Milwaukee, you know, outside of the north side of Milwaukee. So I come from a very low income community of color inside Milwaukee, but our local school was one where my mother didn't want to send us there. So myself, my five brothers and sisters, she enrolled us in the program called the 220 program where we were bussed out to a suburban school that was previously all white, <laughs> but now we were the black kids, right? And so there were different social norms and, you know, things that they were, you know, TV shows that they watched and food that they ate that I was like completely not aware of right. and, and not even comfortable with. I didn't know the social norms. And then I was also, in terms of this is my first sort of masterclass of white supremacy, being that I was a receiver of a lot of the racial bias of the white teachers because they, you know, they had this imagination of what these poor black and brown kids were like coming from Milwaukee, the city, but yet they hadn't had any opportunity to have neighbors of color. Uh, they don't have people of color in the social circle. So their imagination of who we were, how we acted, and our intelligence played out on black kids every day. And so I'm not quite sure I don't have a silver bullet to this, <laughs> an answer to the um, social distance problem. But what I do know is that we need, as a, as a society, to think very, um, very deeply about how wedded we are to our social distance in terms of our comfort. Mm -hmm. you know, because it, I, just like I said, in those three areas where we live, where it's in there, kids to school and where we work, these are very core decisions that keep us isolated, racially isolated, if we make these decisions based in race. Fascinating. Yeah, I also was a, a, a student that was bussed out because I went to school in the 70s. And um, so I, I remember those experiences and I was the only white girl. So it was, um, but my, I loved my peers. I mean, I love school. I just, I found it, you know, fascinating to learn about different cultures and how families lived and how they celebrated. So, um, yeah, it was. It, it's just an interesting that both both of us had had similar but very different experiences. But you talked about um, those conversations that we should be having with our kiddos, um, and I was wondering if you could just kind of articulate a little bit deeper about what that might look like and how teachers can open that door. <laughs> yeah, I find that this is very scary for a lot of teachers, especially white teachers, right? In terms of like, how do we have a talk about race and racism with my kindergartners? Um, but what we know from research is that Kids, uh, you know, as young as five, understand the differences between race, and they've ingested racial bias by that age. There was a study by Kenneth and Mamie Clark back in the 50s. 
there are two psycho black psychologists. And I don't know if you've heard of the study. Uh, but what they did is they took a group of black kids and a, a group of five-year-olds. They're half black and half white. They took them one at a time and presented them with a set of dolls. Oh, and, yeah. You know, yeah, part of the dolls, you know, half of the dolls are black, half of the dolls are white. And overwhelmingly, regardless of the color of the child, the children chose the white doll. Mm-hmm. And then they would follow up with like, all right, so you chose the white towel. Why did you choose the white towel? Because the towel looked friendly, it looked nice, it looked clean, all these you know, nice adjectives to describe the, uh, the white towel. And they asked like, okay, so what do you think about the black towel? And they would use words like he looks bad or she looked bad or she looks dirty, she looks unfriendly. Um, and so what they, what they you know, sort of, what they uh, found during the study is that students as young as five had ingested the meaning of skin color. Right. You know, they knew about racism and they knew that they had a preference. You know, it's kind of like the implicit association test just for five-year-olds. You know, we sure. take it older in life, but this is the, the five-year-old version. And so kids that young know about the differences in race. But what the, the promising point around kids so young is that they haven't yet learned the filters. You know, the social graces of not talking about race. Mm-hmm. It's the adults that have learned these social graces and these filters that in their anxiety then prevents kids from having conversations about race. And so I've had conversations about racism with kindergartners. Tell us about what does that look like? How does that, how does that take place? Well, kids see and they know. They want to talk about skin color, but it makes adults so uncomfortable. And so it's simple prompts. Prompt. So during, and you have to normalize it. You can't be mm-hmm. like, all right, today's going to be our race day, y'all. You know, normalize it. So what are the skin colors? You know, so what do you guys notice that are different with, with your skin colors in this classroom? You know? If, you know, he's darker, oh, he's lighter. Um, I don't know, do you just stay in the sun longer? Is that why your skin is dark, you know? Your hair is different, you know, it, it's 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 stringy. You know, there's black, you're, you have stringy hair, but when you wash it, doesn't it become like mine? They have these genuine questions about differences that we, we are, as adults, are so afraid to let them actually mm-hmm. ask because we're afraid, like, oh my God, this is going to get back home to the parents and they're going to be offended. We shouldn't talk about race and differences. We're all the same. I've heard so many teachers, like, we're all the same. Everyone's, you know, right. everyone's a person. But like, no, we are different sure. and we need to have questions. And, and students notice these things and they want to talk about them. So before they develop the filter, before we we uh, essentially um, um, educate them to, be, them to be racially illiterate, because that's what we do in K 12, we educate people to be racially illiterate. We, we, we socialize them that talking about race is taboo and we don't give them the language to do it. And so people graduate from high school functionally racially illiterate. But we have to imagine the antithesis to that. What does it look like when we intentionally um, uh, implant conversations about race indifference into the classroom from K all the way to 12? And so most children, uh, you know, I, I would say third grade and above, know what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. So most children know that, you know, the George Floyd incident, police brutality, Black Lives Matter, um, and they need the language to talk about it. And teachers have that opportunity just to talk about everyday events. You know, if you're going to talk in social study about everyday events, like, all right, in the news today, this came up. You know, what do you and create the holding, holding space for students to talk to each other so they can develop the comfort and the literacy to talk across races about these particular topics, which then gives them, the uh, uh, one, the comfort, the frameworks, and also practice in having these conversations. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge space. And I think there's a lot of, you know, fear mongering going on in terms of having these conversations. And a few weeks ago, I read an article about, you know, a teacher, I think it was LA Unified, that, um, you know, the parents had reported that they were talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter and other topics. And the the parents, because obviously, we're all in Zoom land now, right? So the parents are right there listening in on those conversations. And so I think, 
even more so now teachers feel a lot more anxiety about having those conversations and having job security. Um, so I don't know. What do you say to that? Well, what I say to that is, you know, we, we have to be the change we want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. Like if we are so, um, if you want to see a better society, if you want to, you know, promote more harmony between races, less racism, um, and things that we see out of that, we have to be brave and bold, you know, and I would suggest coordinating with the school leader because <laughs> if the school leaders, you know, uh, backing you on these conversations, then you have cover. Um, that you work with your leadership, you say that I want to incorporate discussions about race. And if the school just the school's not ready, you have to go through this ripening period. You can't just right. launch into that and put your job on the line. That's not good for anyone. Sure. But a person in your administration saying, I want to have this conversation, I want to figure out how to do that. It doesn't have to be this year, it doesn't have to be this month, but you know, racism has been ever present. And we're not going to solve it in one year compared to our 400 years of oppression, right? So it doesn't need to happen right at this moment because we want to sort of respond to what's going on in society at this moment. But we need to be very purposeful in saying that we want our our um, school community to be a colorful community rather than a color mute. You know, Michael Pollock calls it, uh, the term color mute, meaning we just don't talk about the dynamics of race and racism. We don't want to be color mute, we want to be colorful. So how do we develop this in a purposeful way so it's not just the one and done, I want to talk about it today, but how we get something we can do intentionally in the schoolhouse to realize that racism is a pertinent issue that we need to incorporate conversations about that on the regular and not just you know, after the next police shooting. Yeah, I, I love that. So you talked about as a teacher approach, working with your leadership, you know, be intentional and then having conversations on a regular. So can you share with us some of your experiences as, as administrator and how you supported having supported teachers in terms of, you know, uh, learning about their their uh their bias and uh moving forward with purposeful practices to support yeah, it, oh no i could talk i could talk at length about this and what i recommend <laughs> first is one that principals and schools and schools just partner with a professional you know this this is a profession you know, anti-racism is a profession and there are experts out there to work along with you to help you increase your racial literacy. I would not encourage folks to launch into this with the best of intentions and then flub, you know, flub it and not right. do it well and make it worse because that can happen, right? Good intentions don't, doesn't make for good outcomes, mm -hmm. right? So when I was a principal, I hired a, a consultant uh, in Western Massachusetts. They're multicultural bridges. They're out, they're out of Stockbridge, Massachusetts oh. because I knew that we need to have conversations about race. And in my particular situation, I was the black principal and my entire faculty was white. Wow. <laughs> and so, and I didn't yet have the dexterity to, uh, I didn't know these terms about, you know, the good, 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 uh, non-racist, bad racist binary, white fragility. You know, I didn't know all these terms. I didn't have the dexterity yet. So I didn't want to launch into this and make it worse and, and put my teachers on the defense. So I hired in Multicultural Bridge and they worked along with me and the teachers to facilitate these conversations. And I learned from them. Sure. So I didn't just put that in front of teachers and say, okay, go off and have these conversations. No, I was an active part of that as leader so I could learn how to lead this work. And so they were the catalyst that I was having these discussions in the school building until I built my literacy enough that they can then pass the baton on and then we can carry it forward. And so what I recommend for anyone who's interested in doing anti-racist work is find a provider, 
first, <laughs> you know, and help them and have them guide you along the path to do this well, because best of intentions doesn't make for best of action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I see a lot of schools now focusing on SEL, social emotional learning, but not doing that work alongside anti-racism, right? Because I think SEL can just sometimes be an, a band-aid to cover up a bigger problem of systemic racism. So what, what do you think about having that space? I mean, I love your advice to, to hire somebody outside, but you know, when, as you shared, when do good, good intentions, um, not have good outcomes? Yeah. I mean, it, it's that that's what it is. Like the best of, so if we're functionally racially illiterate, okay, we could say that we're functionally racially illiterate. We don't have no have had these conversations. We don't have these conversations often and frequently, but yet we have been sparked by something in the community. Something's happened where we feel like, all right, right. I want to have talks about race with my students. We have to locate the motivations behind that. And most often the motivations is that I feel either feel guilty, I feel shameful, right. I feel like I need to do something right now, just but but just a one and done sort of thing. Sure. You know? And that's not the right intention, right? That's a good intention. It's laudable, but it's not going to make any substantive change. And nor do we have the literacy to actually have these conversations. And it's not substantive, substantive because it's a one and done. Sure. So let's get away from that. Let's do something more sustainable and think thoughtfully about this. Because as I said, you know, we've had 400 years of oppression in this country. It's going to take more than a semester or a year to undo that. And so we have to be intentional about how to incorporate that into something on the regular. And we can take our time to develop that. It doesn't need to be just like that because we feel like responding. And that's not the right intentions. And so um, I suggest folks be, be really intentional mm -hmm. about incorporating it on the regular within their practice. And I wish schools of education would offer these courses, but you know, unfortunately they don't. So that's a part of the battle I have in academia right. is trying to you know, help my department and my college uh, you know, one, develop specific courses around this, 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 um, this uh, what, what is what I'm looking for? Um, so like a standard, sure. standard of anti-racist leadership, you know, we, people need to understand that. And also in teaching, like what does anti-racist teaching look like? So folks will have some, a modicum of understanding when they make their way into the field. Right. And, you know, at, the research says that 61%, actually the data shows that 61% of teachers are white. And so many have been in the field and they're not getting kind of that, as you shared, that, um, the narrative they're not getting the the toolkit of racial literacy which is a, is a new space because as you shared the research is evolving we're learning new things you know we're we're figuring out what the outcomes are and how they're perpetuating systemic racism so there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this area um, and I love your advice about just kind of not moving into this mindset of one and done but moving into a framework of becoming functionally racially literate. Correct. So how do we do that? I mean, I got your book. I think it's amazing. I enjoyed reading it. It, you know, it was kind of like who moved my cheese, like, wow. And I got fired up, <laughs> but I want to know what I could be doing. So well, like I said, I mean, you increasing the rate when you want to increase your literacy just in general. So if you think about a child increasing their literacy, they read more, right? right? Increasing your literacy, you read more. So that's what we call racially literate. If you have not been reading about race, you're racially illiterate. If you're not been practicing having discussions or being immersed in sort of uh, uh, 
uh, communities talking about race and racism, you're illiterate. Right? Sure. So we have to read more specifically about the dynamics of racism. Now, there's a litany of like books and lists going around, you know, since the George Floyd incident about things that we could read. You know, but we we one we shouldn't stop there, but we should want to increase our literacy in terms of the reading and then start talking about these dynamics in our circle of influence. Mm -hmm. Now we can't just live anti-racism at work. Right. You know, we can't just say, all right, well, since I'm a teacher and I teach a few kids of color, I'm gonna talk about racism in my classroom. But when I go back to my white neighborhood, I'm not gonna talk about it in my social groups or in my family or in my circle of influence. That's not the way it works. That's how illiteracy thrives. And so just like people of color, we live race, you know, because it's imprinted upon us. You know, we we are racialized beings just by the nature of being in the in the, the, the whiteness of the, the, the country. And also white is a race too, but white people often don't think about themselves as racialized. You right. Know? And so as folks are increasing their racial literacy, they need to see themselves as racialized and how they continue to contribute to and perpetuate racism, one in their everyday lives. But two, if they're really trying to, to do something substantive for the students in their buildings, they can't just do it at work. Because that's kind of like giving, you know, giving society uh, ounce of cure for, for a pound of poison. Mm. You know, we're actually creating the problems that we're trying to teach against in, our, in the schoolhouse. So a lot of our decisions that we make outside of the school, schoolhouse perpetuates the racism that we're trying to fight in the school building. So we need to understand more of the general concept of racism and understand why it's so important to implement it systemically in the schoolhouse. I love that. And I want to join a professional learning network right now. Maybe there's one that you could recommend or a course that teachers can take out there so that they're in a mindset of having daily dialogue so they could work in this area. Do you, do you, do you, are you familiar with a Facebook group or some network that people can join? <laughs> so, I mean, this is sort of the most simplest uh, thing you could do, Patricia, and, and this is something I encourage. So when, when we were initially quarantined, when COVID first, you know, first hit, you know, I learned how to make, you know, homemade masks by Googling it online and going down the rabbit hole. I also learned how to make sourdough bread, you know, just by Googling it because I cared to do so. So if folks really care to be racially literate, you know, use a Google page, you know, Google anti-racism for teachers, and there'll be a litany of results that come right. up in places that teachers can go. So the first part is like actually caring enough to do something like that, and not just waiting for the opportunity for either a specialist or a person of color to tell you what to do, but I'm actually interested in this for myself. And we know how to do this, mm -hmm. you know, because when we're actually interested in learning how to do something, we Google it, we watch it, you know, uh, a YouTube video or something of the sort to really find. And if you want to find a community, you can go to Facebook in the search bar, right. your anti-racist community, and there are hundreds of anti-racist communities um, out there. And so it's a, it's all a matter of caring enough to do it on on one's own time. Absolutely. And I love that you just kept it simple. One, Google it. Two, join a Facebook group. <laughs> so um, it's, it's been amazing to talk to you. I learned so much and I love your work and what you're doing to really bring this topic into the lives of teachers and shift what they're doing and how they're working with their students. How can we learn more about you and keep up with you? So I'm, I try to be as many places as possible. So, you know, and I, I run a, something called the Anti-Racist Leadership Institute, oh, okay. you know, for, for, for educational leaders, whatever the, the, the realm is, or it could be teacher leaders, it could sure. be principals, it could be, 
AP superintendents. I have a few college chancellors and deans. So I invite everyone in because in terms of increasing racial literacy. So I run the Anti-Racist Leadership Institute, which can be found on my webpage, okay. tracyabenson.com. So that's that's a place where you can go. That's sort of a clearinghouse for all of my talks and my book and the Anti-Racist Leadership Institute and things of that sort. So folks can go to my webpage, tracyabenson.com. But also, um, you can follow me on Twitter mm-hmm. at Dr. Tracy Benson um, on um, uh, Instagram because one of my cohorts in my leadership institute said you need that Instagram, so I got on there. And also, you can follow me on Facebook. And so I try to be on all social media outlets, and I post everything racism in schooling. You know, so I try to put up the latest articles, latest research, um, things that are going on for folks to to more incorporate that these sort of readings are. Uh, um, the ability to sort of to increase their racial literacy by interacting with me through social media, reading short articles so they can be inundated with more thoughts around the dynamics of racism and what it takes to be an anti-racist. All right. Well, thank you so much for all that knowledge and we appreciate having you on the show and hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much, Patricia. I appreciate our conversation today. Okay. I, 